I, uh, I wonder if you've heard it said before that the majority of Christians around the world fear the raised fist or worse. Christians in Australia, we fear the raised eyebrow. Would you pray with me as we uh, look at this passage together? Our Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to read your word. We thank you that we can do this in safety. And we thank you that we have your spirit within us to convict us, encourage us and help us understand what you're saying. We ask, Lord, that you'll calm our thoughts. Give us ears that are open to hear, minds that are able to understand, and hearts that are soft and willing to change. May you speak to us here tonight, and may we become more like Jesus through your word. Amen. Last week and now this week, Jody, uh, Jody spoke to us all about a church vision. In short, it was to see the people of Jamboree and the surrounding regions know how they can live in relationship with Jesus and understand why it matters. Simple to say, right? But if we adopt this as a church, I predict a number of things will happen. Number one, we will need to question as individuals whether we actually believe in and agree with this vision. Number two, if we do, we'll need to ask what's my role in it. Number three, we'll then need to consider how do we actually share the gospel. And then finally, we'll need to do it and proactively. If all this takes place, I'm going to have a good guess at it that some of us, if not all of us, will experience hardship and possibly persecution as a result. In fact, if you're an active follower of Jesus and you have been for some time, it's more than likely you have experienced some form or another of persecution. If you haven't, then there's a simple question to ask. Am I actually living as a Christian or am I simply giving lip service? Now, I want to be clear up front. I think as Christians we have to be really careful to make sure when we are receiving persecution or experiencing hardships, I think we have to be certain that it's because of the gospel that we're experiencing this, not because of us. Not because of our manner, not because we're just annoying or rude. We must be sure that it's because of the message of the gospel. That said, if we faithfully live out our calling and endeavour to share this good news, Jesus himself promises us that we will suffer. So the question that lingers in my mind is, will I actively do this? Will I actively share the gospel of Jesus? And what will I do when hardship or suffering ensues? I think it's worth noting to everybody that uh, I had no idea what Jody was saying last week. Uh, I heard it for the first time like all of you. And this passage was chosen about two months ago. I had no idea of what Jody was thinking in regards to a church vision. That said, the passage we're about to read fits uh, pretty well. In fact, I think it fits perfectly. So let's have a look at it. It's 2 Timothy 2, 1 to 13. It says this, Timothy, my dear son, be strong 
through the grace that God gives you in Christ Jesus. You have heard me teach these things that have been confirmed by many reliable witnesses. Now, teach these truths to other trustworthy people who will be able to pass them on to others. Endure suffering along with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Soldiers don't get tied up in the affairs of civilians' life, for then they cannot please the officer who enlisted them. And athletes cannot win the prize unless they follow the rules. And hard-working farmers should be the first to enjoy the fruit of their labour. Think about what I'm saying. The Lord will help you understand all these things. Always remember that Jesus Christ, the descendant of King David, was raised from the dead. This is the good news I preach. And because I preach this good news, I am suffering and have been chained like a criminal. But the word of God cannot be chained. So I am willing to endure anything if it will bring salvation and eternal glory in Christ Jesus to those God has chosen. This is a trustworthy saying. If we die with him, we'll also live with him. If we endure hardship, we'll reign with him. If we deny him, he will deny us. If we are unfaithful, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny who he is. Remind everyone about these things and command them in God's presence to stop fighting over words. Such arguments are useless and they can ruin those who hear them. If you don't know already, this is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to a young man named Timothy, hence the title of the book. It's written while Paul is imprisoned and at a time when he's been abandoned by his followers and helpers. He's been left to defend himself in court and he's looking down the barrel of being executed for his faith. I would argue that Paul is genuinely in a situation where his life will most likely be ending and where he has ample time to sit around and reflect on, well, what has he done with the good news he received on the road to Damascus, and I think time to reflect on whether he truly believes it in the face of hardship and persecution. It's in this context that he writes to Timothy, and it's with these things in mind that he gives Timothy a rousing appeal to stand strong and teach the truth regardless of the consequences. He actually takes it one step further and urges Timothy to join in with his sufferings for the sake of the gospel and the sake of the elect. Paul goes on, and we're going to have a look at these, to give three easily recognised examples of how we are to endure hardship. And he reminds us why we're enduring it. That is, because of what Jesus has done for us on the cross and because of who God is in his nature and character. So Paul starts with Timothy, my dear son, Be strong through the grace that God gives you in Christ Jesus. If you've been around churches long enough, uh, like myself, I think you'll notice that people and churches respond to the gospel differently in the way that they acted out. I think two prominent approaches can be seen. Firstly, we have the Christian and the church who is strong, uh, courageous, steadfast, a victor who's empowered by spirit and bold in nature and who leans on the victory of Christ over death and sin and extends this victory to everything, 
Secondly, the wounded, weak, broken struggler who recognises his loneliness before God, battles through life with his own sin and struggles to see victory anywhere. I'll say them again. The strong, courageous, steadfast victor and the wounded, weak, broken struggler. I wonder if you've seen these. I wonder if you've seen them in churches and I wonder if you yourself lean to one side or the other. Have you experienced it with friends or family who tend to swing to one side or the other of the pendulum but find it hard to find the middle ground? I imagine Paul saw this also while he was alive and he actually gives Timothy the solution to the swinging Christian pendulum. What's he say? He says, Timothy... Be strong in the grace that God gives you in Jesus Christ. Be strong. But what does this mean? Uh, I enjoy cycling as a sport, uh, road riding that is. Uh, I am not a rude cyclist. Uh, When you drive up behind me, I move as far to the left as I can and I'll often wave you past. So don't judge me too harshly. If you have been on a bike and ridden with people, you will know this as a fact. There are always people who are better than you. In fact, there are usually people who are double your age, who can outride you, outclimb you, and in general, cycle for longer and better than you can. When I was younger, I didn't know this and I didn't believe it, because youth was on my side. My knowledge of road bikes extended to this The harder I ride, the faster I will go. Therefore, I should put my chain on the largest cog and my job with my youthful muscles was to grind and grind and grind. When I rode with people who were smaller than me and what I deemed to be weaker than me, I was shocked to see them hold higher speeds for longer periods of time with much more ease. My greatest shock was when a 55-year-old woman rode 180 kilometres with me and I hit the ground about 150 kilometres in. I don't think she broke a sweat. I rode with my own strength, but I still couldn't keep up with them. It wasn't until I humbled myself and I spoke to this older lady and said, what are you doing that I'm not? It turned out I was relying on my own strength to do the job rather than relying on the wonderful technology under my body. All I had to do was this. Use the smaller cog, increase my revolutions, and I would go faster for longer with more ease. I think this is what Paul's trying to say about the grace of God. When we try and rely on our own strengths and the gifts that God's given us, on our ability to smooth people over or on simply how hard we work for the gospel, then we actually become weak. We become weak through exhaustion because we're simply not sufficient. It's only when we relinquish our control and recognise that there is something better there to help us that we can be strong. And that something better is the grace of God. Only when we are weak can we find true strength in God's grace. Only when I realised I have nothing to offer do I have something to give. 
Paul is saying to Timothy and to us. Take strength in God's grace because God is strong. Take strength in God's grace because we are weak. Simple to say, isn't it? Find strength in God's grace and endure because of that strength. But how do we actually do it? How do we continue to go on in this strength, in God's grace, once we've been humbled? Paul tells Timothy that it's actually through the teaching of the truth and passing it on to others that we grow in strength. He says in verse 2, You've heard me teach things that have been confirmed by many reliable witnesses. Now teach these truths to other trustworthy people who will be able to pass them on to others. Paul is impressing on Timothy and to us the importance of passing on the knowledge or truth that we have received. He's urging Timothy to do to others what Paul did to him. He taught him the truth and now he's saying teach it to others. We live in a world where truth is disappearing and knowledge is increasingly attained through the individual's experience. I'm sure that you are seeing this. In fact, truth is now, well... It's a dirty word. And to hold unswervingly to it and to many biblical truths results in us being branded dogmatic, unloving and extremists who are to be viewed with suspicion. If you inquire of the Bible with rigour and sincerity and hold unswervingly to the truths found within it, you, you will be labelled. You may become an outcast and you may even be persecuted. As already mentioned, Jesus assures us of this and Paul is experiencing it while writing this very letter. Despite this, Paul tells Timothy to do it. Teach the truth and pass it on. That's why we do this, right? There was a question on it. We teach the word, we teach the truth and pass it on. That's why my little ones are across in the hall being taught the truth. That's why our youth are on uh, camp right now. That's why we go to Bible study even when we're tired. That's why we read our Bibles. That's why we listen to podcasts and sermons online. We teach each other so that we can grow in strength, in the strength that comes through God's grace, which we can only receive when we're weak. So Paul's outlined two things for us so far. Be strengthened in God's grace and pass on the truth. I wonder which of the two styles of churches and Christians has got it right. The bold, victorious overcomers or the lowly, broken vessels. I think they're both kind of onto the right thing, but they're doing it in isolation. Brought to either extreme and they begin to either take away from God's grace and bring glory to self or begin to deem God's grace not sufficient. So where are we to find our strength in the face of suffering? It's in God's grace. We should dwell on all that God has given us through Christ and know that we deserve none of it and can earn none of it. Only then can we be strong. Paul continues on with Timothy and he gives us uh, three examples. Verse 3. He says, Endure suffering along with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Soldiers don't get tied up in the affairs of civilian life for then they cannot please the officer who enlisted them. I didn't mention this, I am a teacher at Caldwood, but I'm a history teacher, uh, and I teach ancient and modern history. And one of the topics we study is ancient Rome. 
At the time of Paul's life, the Roman Empire was at the height of its power and this power was maintained by military strength. The military of the time was quite different to our standing army. A soldier didn't really serve the empire as such. He served his commander, who was usually a man of high standing and wealth and had great loyalty to him. There was no singular army, but many. In order to maintain the Roman Empire, it was not unusual for armies to be on tours for years at a time. If you have read anything about Roman soldiers, you know this fact. They were brutal. They endured hardship. They endured the heat. They endured the cold. They walked for miles each day when required, carrying a heavy load. They slept in tents and they faithfully went into battle when required. When in battle, I'm going to have a guess at it to say you would never have found a soldier by your side who went under attack would say, why are these other people trying to stab me? What did I do to them? Or why, why are they launching fireballs at us? I just, I just can't understand what's going on here. You would never find a Roman soldier who was surprised under attack. They were well trained, they knew their duty, and they knew who they were serving and why they were serving them. Like the soldier, Paul is urging Timothy to not be surprised by suffering. Rather, to get in the trenches with your fellow Christians. For us, I think this means in our workplaces, befriend the Christians when you know who they are, even if they're a little odd. When you know your Christian brothers and sisters are struggling, support them. And I know many of us do this. When you speak to your children about the plight of Christians around the world, pray for them as a family. As an aside, a great place to take your children to see and understand what life is like for many Christians around the world is Open Doors. They give wonderful information that puts our lives in perspective. Suffering is a promise as a Christian, even though we as Christians have experienced unusual peace for the past couple of hundred years in the West. (coughs) Jesus tells us in John 15, verse 18 to 9, If the world hates you, Keep in mind it hated me first. The world would love you as one of its own if you belonged to it. But you are no longer part of the world. I chose you to come out of the world, so it hates you. The Bible and Jesus are clear. Christians will be persecuted. Christians suffer for the gospel because Jesus suffered. So Paul's saying to Timothy, don't be surprised. As already mentioned, Be certain that it's because of the gospel, not because of you. It is interesting to note that the experience of Christians and us in the West over the past couple of hundred years, it is at odds with the vast majority of Christians' experiences throughout the world. We've experienced peace, acceptance and promotion. Our parliament has always prayed before sessions and we've always sworn on the Bible in court. If you know anything of history, this is highly unusual for the Christian. It is not the experience of vast majority of Christians. But the West is quickly moving away from its Christian roots and adopting an anti-Christian worldview. What do we do with this? We're to prepare for it. We're to prepare our children to be like soldiers 
steadfast in the gospel, knowing the truth and enduring through suffering and hardship. The next example Paul gives us is of the athlete. He says, And athletes cannot win the prize unless they follow the rules. This summer my daughters have been introduced to a multitude of sports. We've watched test cricket, 2020 cricket, the tennis, soccer. They've seen some of the best waves at the Pipeline Masters ever. And they're looking forward to the Winter Olympics, uh, the greatest of the Olympics in my opinion. What has intrigued them is not so much the watching of the sport, although they do enjoy that, but it's their appreciation of the intricacies of each sport and the height at which professional athletes perform. I've explained to them that a fast bowler, in some cases, can bowl a ball over 150 kilometres an hour. At that pace, you predict where it's going because you can't see it. Or a spin bowler makes the ball spin 50 revolutions per second. I've also explained to them the rules that each player must adhere to in order for them to compete and win the prize. Bonnie kept calling out when she was watching uh, the cricket, Daddy, the wickets have fallen to the ground, or the player's been caught, but they're not out. What she didn't understand is that the bowler had broken a rule. His foot had gone too far across the line. I'm starting to see my daughters understand that without strict training, you can't get to these levels of excellence. But more importantly, if you don't play by the rules, you don't get the prize. What's the prize for the Christian that Paul is referring to? What are we striving for and what are the rules? The prize I take it is our heavenly abode in the presence of God. It's eternal life. And as Christians, our lives must reflect what we profess, lest we don't get the prize. I'm not talking about perfection here, but I'm talking about an attitude that reflects that of Jesus. I'm also confident that Paul is not talking about salvation by works. He's already stated that our strength comes through grace. He also nullifies the argument of salvation by works in Ephesians 2, verse 8 to 9, where he says, God saved you by his grace when you believed, and you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done, so that none of us can boast. But I'm also confident that if we grasp what we have received through God's grace, and if we are strengthened by that grace, then our lives should be a thankful and grateful expression of what we've received. We are to live lives that God has purposed us to live, and through this thankful expression, we please the one who enlisted us, a Heavenly Father. Our lives should reflect Christ's. Are you like the athlete playing by the rules? Am I like the athlete playing by the rules? Or am I, am I living a life that's reflective of Christ's calling? Or do I just look like everybody else? I think we ought to consider this with soberness. If our lives don't look like that, then what needs to change? Finally, Paul takes us to the farmer. He says, and the hard-working farmers should be the first to enjoy the fruit of their labour. I have a good friend who grew up out west on a farm 
uh, about five hours from here. And I met his dad a few years ago. And before this meeting, I just said to him, what's your dad like? His reply has stuck with me ever since. He said, he's a hard-working man and he can turn his hand to anything. The thing that came straight to mind for my friend Mitch was that he's hard-working. I wonder if you know farmers like this. I wonder if you have farmers in your family. I know that Ben does. They are hard-working. They have to be. Because if they're not, the job doesn't get done. If they don't do it, the crops will fail, the sheep will die, the cows' udders will become infected. They simply have to work. The second thing that strikes me about farmers is they are long-suffering but ever-optimistic. During the drought a few years ago, I said to my friend, how are your parents travelling? He smiled and said, they're well. They know the rains will come. Then the rains did come and the crops were abundant and in came the mice. I said, how are your parents? He said, they're well. They know the winter will come. The winter did come and the mice died, but so did the rains and then came the floods. I asked him again, how are your folks? He said, they're well. They know the waters move on. Year after year, they face hardship and often appear to be suffering, but they continue on. They work hard and they look to their great hope. Should we not emulate the farmer in their hard work and hope? And should we not work diligently at our faith and with those around us in the hope of the promises through Jesus Christ and through God's grace? Why do we look to these things? Why do we work hard? Not to be saved, but because we are saved. So Paul urges Timothy to emulate the nature of the soldier, the adherence of the athlete to the rules, and the hard work of the farmer. And we had to do all these things for the gospel also. Because we're all gospel workers, whether we're paid like Jody or not. If you know Jesus, you are his, and you are to do his work. Not out of obligation, not out of necessity, but out of a willing thankfulness in response to what we have received. After these examples, Paul finishes by exhorting Timothy to remember who it is that he's serving and why Paul is willing to suffer and endure hardship. He says in verse 8, Always remember that Jesus Christ, a descendant of King David, was raised from the dead. This is the good news I preach. And because I preach this good news, I am now suffering and have been chained like a criminal. But the word of God cannot be chained. So I am willing to endure anything if it will bring salvation and eternal glory in Christ Jesus to those God has chosen. Paul is clearly saying to Timothy and reminding him, Jesus is the promised Messiah who was spoken about in the Old Testament. He is the one who was spoken of to David when God promised him that his kingdom would last forever. And it is for this Jesus that Paul is in chains. However, he makes a beautiful point. Paul says people may imprison Christians. They may beat them up. They may take their homes and they may ultimately kill them, but they cannot put the word of God in chains. The proof of this is in countries where regimes have tried to do this. I'm not sure if you've observed, but in countries where persecution is the worst, the gospel thrives. 
People are saved and the church grows. Take China, for example. The Chinese government actively and systematically track the church through sophisticated surveillance. They ultimately want their citizens to serve the state and the state alone. As such, Christianity opposes this, and as a result, the church is persecuted. Currently, it's estimated that there are 97,700,000 Christians in China. They're doing a good job, the Chinese government, aren't they? Or North Korea, the second most dangerous country in the world to be a Christian. So dangerous, in fact, that people hide their faith from their spouses and children. Yet in a country as brutal as North Korea, it's estimated there are some 400,000 Christians. How is it that the church survives? It's because the word of God cannot be chained, nor can God's spirit, who draws the elect into the knowledge of Christ. At the end of the day, governments and people are powerless, and Christians ultimately have nothing to fear, because God is bigger than them. He is bigger than autocratic regimes. He's bigger than sophisticated surveillance. In fact, his son is Lord of all of these. And he is Lord of all of here in Australia. So what does Paul resolve? He says he's willing to endure anything, anything for the sake of those God has chosen. He will preach the gospel no matter the cost. He will preach the gospel no matter the consequence. So the question I have to ask is, Am I willing to share the gospel with everybody I know, regardless of consequence? If my answer is no, then I have to ask if I'm actually a Christian. If I am not willing to endure hardship so that people I know and love can hear the gospel and be saved from eternal separation, then I simply don't get the gospel. Paul finishes with this beautiful little poem or song. He says, this is a trustworthy saying. If we die with him, we will also live with him. That is, if we die to ourselves and turn to Christ, we'll live eternally with God. If we endure hardship, we'll reign with him. Again, a promise of eternal life. If we deny him, he will deny us. A sober warning that we can be rejected. And then finally... If we are unfaithful, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. That is, regardless of our faithfulness or faithlessness, God's character is true. He is faithful to himself and he is faithful to his promises. The gospel will prevail for it cannot be chained. The question for us in a nation where we fear the raised eyebrow though is will we be part of of sharing in Jamboree and the surrounding regions? And will we lean on God's grace for the strength to endure when we suffer? Would you pray with me that we will do this? Our Lord and Heavenly Father, we do pray for those around the world who fear the raised fist. We pray for those around the world who genuinely fear death because of your Son, We pray that your spirit will give them strength, your spirit will give them courage, and that they'll endure. We pray for ourselves here, that we will know that we have no persecution compared to them. 
but we also know that it is hard. We pray, Lord, that we will be bold and courageous in sharing the good news of Jesus with our friends, with our families, with our colleagues, with those we love. We ask, Lord, that we will look for opportunities. We ask, Lord, that we won't shy away when we get them. And we ask, Lord, that we will rely on your grace for our strength. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.